Hey everyone, it's Ben, voice of Isaac and the creator of the Artemidge account here. We at Scope just wanted to say thank you to everyone who has found the show so far. There's a good bit more than a hundred of you, and to be frank, that's more than we ever thought we would have. So again, thanks. We also wanted to let you know that episode four will be coming out a week later than usual. But don't worry though, we'll have a canon mini-episode to tide you over. Finally, we just wanted to give a big thanks to our first two patrons, Twilight Goddess and Reborn Neji. We are a small production company, and having your support means the world to us. If you'd like to become a patron and support the show, you can find the link to the Patreon down in the description. Now, back to the show. To anyone who can hear this broadcast, this is the Armitage account. Are you sure you really want to do this again? Yes. Look, I know how hard it is losing someone like that. I'm just concerned. My mother was searching for Artemidge. She was convinced we were related. Now I find out that there's a massive hole in how he supposedly died? This is a lead. I know. I'd just rather listen to you making episodes of oddities of yore than, well, this. You only just got back, and something about this place is changing you. Every night you spend in here, you get more and more... I'm not making this for fun, Lou! I know, okay? I I get it. I know. Lou, I'm... Forget about it. I shouldn't have brought it up. Isaac Andrews, September 10th, 2022. 2200 hours. I've taken some time to tend to my own research. Lou is right, though. This investigation is taking a lot out of me. I'm getting horrible reviews and comments from people who think I'm using the tragedy of Mother of a Thousand to promote some B-list fiction. I forget to eat. I'm not sleeping much, and the rest that I am getting is... In previous recordings, after each reading, there are hours of silence before I would speak again. I would cut these out, of course, for those of you who are following, but during this time, I would be in a state somewhat akin to unconsciousness. Except when I wake up, I feel horrible. 
My body would feel fatigued as if I hadn't had food or water in days, and my head would feel as if someone shoved a screwdriver behind my eye. So yeah, not exactly restful. The first time, I was out for around nine and a half hours. The second time, just under nine. Tonight, I've brought a stopwatch with me to see if there's any additional trends. This place should not exist. It was supposed to be burned down almost 100 years ago, and yet it stands. I just... I want to know what she saw. Why this was so important. Why he was so important. What matters now is that I finally have a hole in the story. And thanks to Felix, I now know my alleged great-grandfather kept correspondence. Isaac Andrews, September 11th, zero hundred hours. My unnamed mystery fan has left another note for me. This time it was on another book called True Magic, spelled with a K. The note simply says, How? However, mystery fan, I am pleased to say that we are not doing that. Nope. Instead, I have something that is actually useful this time. I am currently holding a series of documents addressed to Henry Artemidge from one Solomon Lloyd. They are contained in a yellow envelope, the paper also yellow with age, and most notably they are dated 1839, the same year as the fire. Now, I just want to make something clear to you, mystery fan. I don't trust you. If you didn't know that this existed, that's one thing. But if you did, then I would love to know why you are trying to mislead me. Let's see what you're hiding. To Professor Henry Artemich. I have followed our leads regarding Invictus Malarum to Innsmouth, and the state of the city is clear. I can confirm that the city, once quarantined for its contamination, continues to grow in population, despite the genocide of its residents in 1927. However, I do find one thing curious. The federal government is still active here. Innsmouth in the flesh is as described to us in the collection. Damp, gray, and steeped in the rotten odor of what is, unfortunately, not fish. I was met by officers at a checkpoint upon entering the city proper. They asked my business, and I was able to give my university credentials. It is times like this in which being an anthropologist can work wondrously as a cover. I am currently staying in an inn called the Sailor's Barb. Despite the concentration of federal officers, this town is worse for wear. I dare say it is under occupation. The dense stench here combined with the sound of the ocean is abnormally intrusive as kept me up into the late hours of the night. Perhaps I am on edge from the findings about this place. I've counted maybe a dozen people so far with that distinct Innsmouth look. 
However, I believe the people here pose little to no threat. The officers are another matter. I do wonder what possessed you to send me, of all people. My dark skin sticks out against the Caucasian crowd, and the officers have already made it clear that they have no love for me. Regardless, I must be thankful for the sleeping pills you provided, as I have much to do tomorrow. Let's hope I can find this grimoire swiftly. Your student, Solomon Lloyd. To Professor Henry Artemich. Today's search did not yield the grimoire as I had hoped, but has opened up some more interesting findings about Innsmouth's current state. I was wondering how this town could have such a growing population after the unofficial genocide 11 years ago. However, through asking the locals, I was able to find a very troubling pattern. All those who I had questioned were transplants. Each one had come to Innsmouth of their own accord in serendipitous fashion. Some while fishing, some for financial reasons, and some upon what appears to be pure spontaneity. Upon closer inspection, I identified some key physical descriptors of the Innsmouth look in more people than yesterday. My difficulty identifying those affected stemmed from the variance of the townspeople's development. It was only when I could look more closely that the signs were there. Pale skin, loss of hair, and enlarged eyes and orbits. In almost everyone I talked to, there was some notable trace of Dayon heritage, despite very few having any familial relationship to Innsmouth to start with. From what I can tell, while people here are friendly enough, the same does not go for the occupying force. The people here seem to avoid them if they can, but if approached will treat them with kindness and generosity that I can only describe as both forced and fearful. This morning, while I had my coffee in the lobby of the Sailor's Barb, I watched as a pair of these officers marched in, ordered around the hostess immediately, and notably, did not pay. I was hoping to listen in on their conversation when we heard a large splash from outside. At this, both officers abandoned their breakfast and ran into the street. I followed from a distance as they scurried towards one of the nearby canals that runs through the city and unholstered their weapons. They aimed into the water and shouted for someone to get out. I saw her there, in the sight of their pistols, a woman submerged in the canal. Her long hair flowed to the surface like black weeds and tendrils, all while she swam below. A firearm discharged and water splashed only a yard away from her, a warning shot. She scrambled to the surface and exposed her naked self. She must have been no older than 20, with graying skin and swollen eyes. In her beast-like jaws, there was a squirming eel ravaging in the throes of death. She was distinctly of Dayon descent. I watched as the officers pulled her out of the water and carried her away. So, of course, I followed. This leads to the greatest hurdle so far in my report. According to our copy of Deus Maris et Sonarium, the last known location of Evictus Malarum would have been at the temple of the Esoteric Order of Dagon. Surprisingly, the building is in remarkably good condition. However, the temple has been repurposed. 
Atop its archway, underneath the large elder sign, now hangs a banner that reads, Sanatorium. This was the building that they carried the woman to. I spent the rest of my day with the locals trying to understand the state of the town. It became apparent throughout my day of questioning that not a single person here seems to be aware of the truth of their condition. Many believe it to be a sickness of some sort. When I suggested that it might be genetic and asked about their families, I received mixed results. This will require further study. The one thing that many could agree upon was that this sickness seemed to be the primary reason for the military's presence here. When someone started showing too many signs of the ailment, they would be taken to the sanitarium. Part of this martial enforcement was a strict midnight curfew. Only licensed ships could use the port, and as you might have inferred, swimming itself had been outlawed. This might make sense to us, but to the people here, these rules are confounding. When I asked them why they would not leave Innsmouth, every one of them told me the same thing, that this was their home. I cannot tell if today's findings are troubling or fascinating. The implications that this has for the Dayon bloodline are immense in regards to its ties to the laws of chaos and the mythos at large. This also brings up three more problematic elements. One, how do I know that I do not share Dayon blood? If it's possible for a place tied to them to simply draw in those affected through causality, then what separates those who are divorced from the condition from those with it? Two, what is the government doing here? My best guess is research, but to what end? Something must have made them change their approach if they are not immediately opting for extermination. Third, if the grimoire is still here, then it is likely in the hands of the military. I will await your response as to my next move. Your student, Solomon Lloyd. From Solomon Lloyd regarding the collection of Invictus Malarum. I make these notes to you now from Arkham University's hospital, as my recovery is taking its time and I will likely be here for a while longer. My burns are substantial, but Dr. Pepin stated that I should make a full recovery. Now, despite having told you in person, you have made it clear that I, as usual, would need to provide you a written statement of the events for your records. I hope you do not mind the shaky handwriting. It's difficult to keep my hands steady without the opium. After receiving your orders, I made my way to the sanitarium. Surprisingly, I was able to use my credentials as a graduate student of Miskatonic University studying anthropology to gain entry. I stress that it was not the mention of my degree nor current studies that gained me this access, but seemingly the university itself. I do not know what interactions you or Headmaster Haynes have had with the government in the past, but I would very much love to be briefed on these things before you throw me into the lion's den. I was met by Dr. Singrov, apparently the lead of this operation. He asked me about the scope of my research. I replied that I was curious about the state of Innsmouth since it seemed to have come back to life since the quarantine. 
I thought he bought it. We went to his office and discussed the official history of the town as well as his research. To my surprise, the book was laid open upon his desk. Invictus Malarum, brown leather, poorly bound, with an oily green reflection upon its bindings. I drew no attention to it and instead let Singrov continue his lecture. He claimed that he was studying genetic illnesses, that something in the waters of Innsmouth was interacting with the common ancestry of the people here. I asked if I could read over his research, hoping that it would provide me a chance to get close to his desk and Invictus Malarum. Instead, he stated that he could do better than letting me read his research, that he could show me. He and two rather large orderlies escorted me to the patient wing. They were big men, both of whom wore surgical masks and dark visors. It became apparent to me immediately that they were the muscle, yet all thoughts of them faded once we entered the recreation room. It smelled of fish. The patients were all there, and almost all had the look. These were the people of Innsmouth that we read about. They were here, day own, scattered throughout the den and tending to meager card games and hushed conversations. I watched as one hobbled towards us. She had a horrid hunch over her bloated form. Her hairline had receded towards her crown, and what was left of her locks were thin and frail. Bill, pills, please, she croaked as she looked up at myself and Dr. Singrov with eyes the size of saucers and an almost toothless mouth. Even having been prepared, I found it hard not to show my repulsion as I stepped back instinctually. Singrov laughed and remarked that he forgot what an outsider's reaction might be as he produced some pills and handed them to the woman. At the rattle of his little glass bottle, almost all of the patients in the room ceased their activities and began to charge at us. I would not know what was in those pills for quite some time. I noticed one person in the rec room who was noticeably disinterested, though. She was a girl, probably no older than 17. Her features were normal. She had red hair and fair skin, but she was gaunt and her eyes had dark bags beneath them. They were fixed on me. After the commotion calmed, I asked Singrov if I could have the opportunity to interview some of the patients one-on-one. The plan was that after I had made it clear that this would be a slow and grating process for him to sit in on, he would eventually leave me to my own devices. Then I would be free long enough to sneak back to his office and procure the grimoire. He agreed, and like that, it became a game of chicken. I kept to a standard script in an attempt to make the affair dull. However, I slipped up in the beginning by asking about the water, which seemed to get Singrov excited as the patient responded with their one-word answer. Home. After this, I made a point to keep each interview as monotone as possible and to stay away from anything I knew would intersect with the mythos. Eventually, it worked. Singrov seemed as if he were about to melt away from boredom when the sound of the noon bell rang. With a newfound rejuvenation, he stood up and kindly informed me that he had an appointment with a new patient at that hour and must be going. I smiled and lied that I would continue my research here if he needed me. 
He shook my hand with a grip tougher than I was prepared for and marched away rather hurriedly with his muscle in tow. I waited for them to have cleared the hall for certain before I attempted to depart. Only, I was stopped by the girl with red hair. She abruptly sat across from me and said, He's not going to let you leave. I froze as we stared into each other, her intensity rivaling your own. Singraf, he doesn't know if you are one of them, but he suspects something of you. You want to steal that book from him, right? I had to play it cool. I have been prepared for this town, its people, even the idea of government experiments. But this? You aren't like the others, are you? I asked with the most neutral tone I could muster. I could feel a heat rise up in my spine as if she were triggering my fight or flight. She just smiled at me. I guess you could say that, she said as she held me in her tired brown eyes. I could help you, you know. I just need those pills in your pocket. I lightly placed my hand over the small bottle on my person. The sleeping pills you had gifted me. And what do I get? I returned. Her smile grew wider. You get to live. There was a long moment of silence as we held each other's gaze. I thought she was just another addict, one who had somehow completely made me and was now holding me for ransom. Either I would give her my sleeping pills, or she would blow my cover. I cursed as I reached into my pocket and palmed the bottle to her. As soon as we touched, there was that feeling again upon my spine, except this time it was a burning sensation. I winced in pain as I felt the heat burst throughout my body. Little needles of agony that trickled their way through my nervous system. She looked back at me and frowned. I'm not going to hurt you, she admonished me as she stood there. And I'm certainly not a rat. Sweat ran down my brow as I beheld this fire of a child who now regarded me with a cold disappointment. She left me to my shock. I'm ashamed to admit that I did not immediately spring into action. Instead, I let my heart rest. Unsure if my paranoia had gotten the best of me, or I had actually just beheld something extraordinary. Eventually, I collected myself and made my way to Singrov's office. It was easy. Too easy. But I was too enamored with the thought of her to realize that. I saw practically no guards, no doctors, only the marble floor as I walked calmly to my destination. When I opened the door, I froze. Singrov and his two orderlies stood opposite of me and smiled. He held it in his hand, Invictus Malarum. When the massive hulking man started to march towards me, I knew it was over. So I ran. With each step, my heart hammered, and with each step, I could feel the ground shake beneath me as the thunderous stampede of those men made chase. With my last step, they crashed into me. Their gargantuan forms toppled upon me, and I could feel my ribs splinter as I was crushed into the marble slab of the Old Order. When my vision finally cleared, I could see Singrov as he marched towards me. 
In one hand, he held a syringe. I barked and pleaded, but he paid me no mind. The large, meaty hands of his orderlies forced me into submission as the needle pierced my neck. As my consciousness faded, I could see a new truth about my assailants. One of the orderlies' masks had come loose in the fray, and I could see their face. Their eyes, large and bulbous, in my drug-fueled haze, I could have sworn their pupils were slanted and their skin was so pale. They were Dayon. When I awoke, the world was spinning around me, and I was strapped into a cold metal recliner. Singrov stood above me, his body warping unnaturally. His face seemed to change color and shape, and his appendages seemed to morph in size and texture as he was shoving something down my throat. Pills. God, I hope it was pills. I should say, I hate drugs. Even the opium that kept the pain at bay for the last week made me sick with paranoia. I hate that I do not know where the line between reality and the figments of my imagination begin or end. And make no mistake, Artemich, I hate these books for the same reason. When he was done, he bent down to me and smiled. I told you, I wanted to show you my research, he whispered to me. The stench of his breath summoned bile in my stomach, and I began to hurl. At this, he grabbed my face and clenched my jaw shut. No, 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 no. We don't want that. You need to stay calm and agreeable. Let it digest first. Then you have the doctor's permission. I choked on my own vomit with tears in my eyes until I eventually had no choice but to swallow. After this, I was bound in a jacket and walked out with him into what I think was part of the patient wing. The hall twisted around me, and I could see into some of the cells. Men and women of Innsmouth appeared like tall shadows or misbegotten shapes. The doctors in the hall almost seemed reptilian. I was finally taken to an observation room where I was once again strapped into place. I could hear them faintly as they talked on the other side of the glass. The voice of doctors and military men fused together. The voices that danced with the hum of the electric lights and the voice in my mind. I could also see another victim next to me. A woman strapped down to another chair. Her dark hair let down in a tumbled mess. The same dark hair that was adrift in the canal only a day before. Her face shimmered between beauty and eldritch under the cloud of my muddled mind. I felt a twinge in my arm and looked over to see Singrov placing an IV in me. I didn't remember him getting there, but I did see that the tube that now plunged into my arm led to another machine, a mechanical contraption with opaque tubes and stenciled double P's upon its front. I thought I heard him say in many voices, It's time to find out what you are. Then like that, he was gone. There was another tube lodged in the woman beside me. The same machine tied us together like threads of fate. Static buzzed over the intercom, and I heard what I thought was music. 
I do not know how much of what I experienced was true or the product of that loathsome substance, but it felt like the music danced through me. Each word of a dead language pierced through my body like the needles that came before them. I looked to see that the machine had started to pump. The clear liquid that was in the IV began to give way to something else. I thought it had a dark, murky texture to it. But I also thought it was glowing. My body lit a flame and contorted as it entered my bloodstream. I screamed against my gag and felt my muscles tighten, worsening the experience. My vision blurred, and I looked to see the woman next to me convulsing. It seemed as if she were getting bigger. Her bonds strained as muscle grew, and her face changed shape. I could see slits in her neck that were almost gill-like, and her nose began to recede into her face. She looked at me with eyes that pleaded for release, as if I could do something about our mutual poisoning. But all that I saw at that moment was her body changing. I could project the image of the orderly onto her perfectly as my mind faded from consciousness. She, too, had become Dayon. When I awoke, everything was already aflame. Heat surrounded me in the observation room, and I could see nothing but smoke on the other side of the now-smashed glass pane. My face was rife with pain, and the fire had begun to lick up the chair around me, and I could tell it had taken its toll in an instant. Then the pain and flames were gone. I opened my eyes to see the girl with red hair and brown eyes. Flames danced around her as she pulled me from the chair and thrust a book into my weak grasp. It was, of course, Invictus Malorum. (laughs) You get to live, she said as she hoisted my waking body up. I do not know what she did to create this fire, but I do know that whatever it was exhausted her in the process. So we carried each other. Shoulder and shoulder, we moved through the burning halls. A few times, she stumbled and I pulled her up. At one point, she seemed to lose consciousness entirely. Apparently, the young arsonist took the sleeping pills before setting the blaze. As much as this still confuses me, I vowed not to leave her. I'm not a monster. Screams of the unfortunate could faintly be heard throughout the roar of the fire and the inventions of my drug-addled brain. One such imagination was a specter in the inferno. It was a specter of the girl that I had under my arms dancing through the flames. At first, I was horrified. I thought that I had let her go, that she was no longer with me and now burning alive. But then I realized that she was still in my grasp. I watched as the apparition turned towards me and beckoned me to follow. Perhaps the substance in my body ruined my judgment. Or perhaps because it was her that I followed. When I did, the flames seemed to spread away from me. And I was able to move almost untouched other than the burns I had sustained while I slept. Eventually... We found our exit from the blaze, a portion of collapsed outer wall. I could see the town now in total pandemonium. Gunshots rang as soldiers fired at the people of Innsmouth. They were holding a line against a mob. I did not stay to see what happened. 
I simply took the book and the girl out of the city with the distraction I had been handed. I have not read any official news about the town since, and frankly, I do not care to. Invictorus Malorum has been added to the collection, and the girl, Alexandra Fulton is her name, has been left in you and Headmaster Haynes' care. While I do not know the full extent of what she did to cause the fire, I must express that I am fond of her from the time we spent traveling to Arkham. I made a promise to her that you and the rest of our allies would be of help to her, and most importantly, that we would be safe. I beg you, do not make me a liar. All right, uh, time check. Huh. Eight hours. Interesting. I still feel... not great. Half of these phrases go over my head entirely. Dayon, Elder Sign... My best guess is that these have to do with occult research. Maybe some local native ancestry or custom I'm not familiar with. Mythos could mean anything depending on what culture they are researching, though. I do know a little about Innsmouth from Oddities of Yore. The official story of the town is that in 1927, Innsmouth was put under quarantine by the federal government due to a deadly outbreak of the Spanish flu. Then, some 12 years later, the town experienced a horrible storm, there was a landslide, and then it fell into the sea. There were always some rumors about the place being weird, but nothing substantial. People even joked about them worshipping Greek and Mesopotamian gods. I'm guessing now that there was some truth to that. Hmm. It's interesting that Headmaster Haim seems to have been connected. He's the originator of the Headmaster's Curse, an old urban legend in the university. Regardless, I think I have three big takeaways here. First, I think I can now dismiss this being a prank by our mystery fan. The fact that this document is just as weird as the last two suggests that this is just the vibe of this library. Second, it seems that Artemidge was so dedicated to getting these books that he made some enemies, like the U.S. government. Great, more reasons for people to want me dead. Third... This gives me a name of someone who seemed to know Artemidge well. Solomon Lloyd. If I track down his descendants, I might just be able to find out more about Artemidge himself. Isaac Andrews, September 15th, 2022. Ten hundred hours. I am... Sitting with Felix in his and Lou's home right now, Felix has been able to do some digging on Solomon Lloyd. <clears throat> oh, oh uh, right. Um, so I did my thing as your humble 
human Google search and looked into that guy you mentioned. Uh, yes, Solomon Lloyd. Yeah. And I found nothing. What? Uh, nothing. Just straight up nothing. So, what, he doesn't exist? No, just means that no record of him survived the fire. A lot was lost that day. But obviously, people died, but, you know, records as well. I can't find any of the, you know, employment records before 1939, and there is a solid chance that he kept a quiet life otherwise. Another dead end. Not necessarily. Tragedy struck Arkham last night as the academic library of Miskaton. This is just the news report from the day after the fire. No, this is a list of survivors. Anya Freeman, Carl Green... What, there's probably only a dozen names on here? Look, I know it's not much, but these people were still in there that night. Odds are some of them worked with Armitage. Uh, so... Next best thing, right? Right. Isaac, you, you okay? You, you look. I'm just tired. Um, thanks, Felix. These could be useful. Of, of course. Hey, do, so do you want to get some coffee? Uh, I'm sorry. Maybe later, Felix. Um, Isaac Andrews signing off. In order of appearance, this broadcast features Benjamin Collins as Isaac Andrews and Kenny Nguyen as Felix Lopez. This broadcast is under a Creative Commons 4.0 Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike license and is produced and distributed by Scope Productions. You can follow us on Instagram at Armitage Account or our website armitageaccount.com where you can join the Discord server and learn more about our Patreon. Make sure the word is heard your friends and loved ones about this broadcast. Ensure their safety. Don't have any friends or loved ones? Or just want to spread the word? Then leave a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast provider.